0: Welcome everybody back into Down the Line. As always, I'm your host, Carson Brabber, and today we are coming off of the last Masters 1000 of the year. We had that in Paris, of course, and it was a pretty exciting tournament. Ended ended up coming down to a very exciting final between Daniil Medvedev and Novak Djokovic, who I think at this point have established themselves as the Two top dogs on hard courts, obviously Djokovic historically is the greatest player ever on the surface, but Medvedev has so consistently been so incredibly successful there over these past two and a half years that I think that he has really taken that runner-up spot, and I have said that before. Djokovic ends up winning in three, phenomenal victory for him, and a historic one in multiple ways because in the match previous to the final He clinched the year-end world number one for a record-breaking seventh time, passing Pete Sampras, a record that I remember as a child often thinking, boy, that's insane. I wonder if anybody will ever break that, sort of like Pete Sampras's Weeks at number 1 record. Djokovic now holds both of those. Seventh time as world number one, and that win over Medvedev gave him a record-breaking 37th Masters 1000 title. So a historic win in multiple respects, and of course, coming off of a couple of months in which he has the massively disappointing result at the US Open against Medvedev, and then misses time with injury, of course, even before that, had the trouble at the Olympics emotionally, physically, lost a couple matches there. So it was a very strong, impressive response in that respect. What I will say, though, is that throughout this tournament, we continue to see The Djokovic that beats people really just by having such remarkable clutch abilities. Like, he wins three three three-setters here and plays in a lot of tight matches, but is just able to find a higher level when he needs it most. And we saw that very clearly throughout this year in best of five. Didn't see it as much in best of three. But overall, in 2021, he's 14-5 and in matches in which he lost the first set. He was 2-0 in Paris. That's just unthinkable. I mean, everybody in history is going to be sub-500 in that category. Djokovic included, by the way, by a decent margin. Because guess what? There's no better indicator of losing a match than losing the first set. Especially when you're in best of three. Because then the only thing you can do is lose one more set. And that's not a great stat, is it? Record win losing the first two sets in a best of three match. So, really, really, really remarkable just... Endurance mentally, physically in that respect. And overall, even though the margin wasn't always as convincing, even though he did look human maybe more often than he did in 2011 or 2015, this is now Djokovic's, when all is said and done, third year with three slams equals Roger Federer in that feat. And here he is at 34 and a half years old, and he's still making history, sealing that world number one record, winning that 37th Masters 1,000. 3,300 points ahead of the field right now as far as the rankings go. Just really remarkable stuff from him. So I don't have a whole ton to say about the tennis, the ins and outs of it. It's Novak Djokovic. This is what he does. He finds a way. He is still, to me, clearly the best player on the planet, even if, again, there have been times where he looks human because he just does this. And by the way, this is a big time win over Medvedev because Medvedev has been Right up there for the most imposing challenger to Djokovic on tour over these last few years. Not just because, obviously, he dealt him a loss at the U.S. Open, but since 2019, when Medvedev really ascended to this level, they're 4-4 four and four against each other. And coming into this one, Medvedev had the advantage 4-3 over that time. So, it's a major win. It's huge in reestablishing himself, and we'll see how he carries this momentum over into London. If he is able to go out there and win, excuse me, I said London, I mean Turin, the year-end finals... They are in Turin this year. If he is able to come out with a title there, it really puts a nice bow on a year that started out so remarkably, then he hit some road bumps. But if he could really finish strong and end up with a 53-6 record and six titles and three slams and two big titles to end the year... I don't think anybody is going to remember the slippage all that much, probably, except for the fact that it's just excruciating because he got closer to a grand slam than anybody has since Rod Laver 52 years ago. But nevertheless, that would give him some positive momentum heading into next year and would really cement this as an all-time season. Even though it's already there because of the three slams, he has consistently been missing some of the elements around that just hasn't played in a ton of tournaments, hasn't always been as sharp in best of three. So that would be big, and this is definitely a step towards that, and it's a historic accomplishment. So credit to him, probably the storyline of the tournament. On the flip side of this, though, we have just a concerning storyline, really, and that involves Andre Rublev, who has been on a continual slide over his past few tournaments. Two and four in his last six matches, hasn't gone past the second round in that stretch, and I think Rublev is tremendously talented, and I have talked before about how I would put him talent-wise every bit in the same tier as Zverev and Pas, and I think that he has such tremendous ability to generate pace. I love his serve. I love his ground game from both sides. Just a really, really skilled guy who had this remarkable leap, obviously just pre-COVID is when it really began, but this has been a rough patch for him, and what I think is particularly relevant about this is that Rublev is a guy who has been so outspoken previously about struggling with some of the mental side of things on the court, and then subsequently off the court, managing the emotions, handling losses, really. And he said that after he lost in Moscow to Adrian Manorino, his quote was, I was completely devastated, emotionless, depressed. That is intense, man. I mean, that is intense for a loss in the first round of a non Masters 1000, a non-slam, like not a huge tournament, obviously significant for him because it's in his home country, but that is strong verbiage nevertheless. So I have to feel that there is a mental component in this slide right now because when you have a guy who has talked about, oh, I need to be more patient as far as my play, I need to learn how to better handle and manage my emotions here, he talked about having this sort of complex where he couldn't beat Daniil Medvedev. They grew up together, they played together a lot, and then their first few meetings, Medvedev really handled him rather easily. It becomes quite significant then that a guy has that track record with talking about the mental side of things when he starts losing to people who he really just should not be losing to. And I certainly hope that this stops soon. I'm a huge fan of Rublev's game, and I think at the end of the day, he even though he wasn't as impressive as last year, had one of the five best seasons on tour. He's world number five right now, and again, only ends with one title, 48 and 20 record on the year. That's not quite as good as what he did last year. He didn't quite live up to his potential, his expectations maybe, but nevertheless, a tremendously talented player and a chance to maybe have a little bit of the pressure taken off his shoulders. If you look at the guys he's losing to, it's Taylor Fritz, who has been phenomenal as of late but nevertheless Rublev is a heavy favorite there. It's Von De Zandschulp who was number 69 in the world when they played. Manorino, who was world number 51. Tommy Paul who was world number 60. Like these are guys where all the pressure is on him to perform, to deliver to really control how the match is played and I wonder if there is a little bit of an advantage to maybe being in a more carefree environment even though the stakes will be super high in Turin. And that he is not going to be the favorite in a ton of matches and that he can really have that sort of underdog mentality that in some ways is going to take the pressure off of you and take that mental burden off of you. So I don't know if that is the case, if that'll actually help him. But regardless, I'm just very hopeful that this does not remain an issue for him and that it doesn't really negatively affect him emotionally overall, because that would just be a shame to see. So I mentioned that he lost to Taylor Fritz here. And that's a guy who I just have to give tremendous credit to because he has been winning a whole lot of matches as of late. Made the quarterfinals in Paris, and that was on the heels of a run to the finals in St. Petersburg, and then before that, a run to the semis in Indian Wells. Really remarkable stuff from him. 11-3 over his last three tournaments, has three top seven wins in that stretch, five top 15 wins. We have seen him beat everybody from Zverev to Berrettini to Sinner. That was all in Indian Wells. We've seen him beat now in this past tournament, Andre Rublev, Cam Nori. This is a really tough draw to win three matches in because there just aren't a lot of weak players in Paris. It's a tight draw, 56, obviously a lot of points on the line in a place where everybody loves to play and everybody wants to rack up those points as the year wind down. So it's a tough draw. And he had three real quality wins. And it ended up being that Novak Djokovic was the man who had to stop him. And hey, if you're getting stopped by Novak Djokovic, there's no shame in that. So props to him, man, because one of my takes before this year, one of my bold predictions was that for the first time, in basically recorded history there would not be a top 20 men's tennis player from the United States of America that is going to be true he's world number 23 and he is the top guy although he is very shortly followed by Isner at 24 and Opelka at 25 and we've seen other guys come along strong Corda at 39 Tiafo at number 41 like overall i don't think you could say it's a disappointing year from The U.S., Tommy Pollitt, 52, has won a lot of matches. We had the ascent of Jensen Brooksby, Mackie McDonald, Marcos G. Veteran guys getting into the 50s just keep winning a decent amount of matches. So, really, you can't be all that disappointed. Brandon Akashima climbs up to world number 63. Like, there is a lot of talent and a lot of guys who are, again, hanging out in that top 60-something category. It's just they haven't had that one real high-end guy, and I think we could have predicted that. But you got to give credit to Taylor Fritz for establishing himself down the stretch here as the top American on tour right now. I think that he, outside of Corda, who is still just refining his skill set and really growing into his game, he's obviously a few years younger. I think Fritz is the most talented. And I also think he's a guy who is actually fun to watch. I mean, has weapons, but also is able to grind out matches, can play in multiple styles to a certain extent, isn't totally incompetent, on clay, in grass, like he's at the very least capable there, is going to win around half of his matches. And just compared to a guy like Riley Opelka, that's a lot more fun. And Opelka, props to him because he had a couple really strong results this year too. But I personally would rather see Taylor Fritz And Tommy Paul, honestly, I'm a big fan of his game stylistically too. What I really appreciate about him is just... The dude is able to grind out wins. He has also just been putting in work on tour this year. I think he's played in 24 tournaments now. Really impressive. And that's a guy who is really very legitimate on multiple surfaces. We haven't seen it on grass yet, but on clay, he won the junior French. He's won some matches there in his pro career. So props to him. But I just think that Fritz is clearly that top American guy right now. And he really cemented that here. So is Opelka. Pelka... They're going to win their matches. That's fine. It's almost inevitable. But Fritz, I think, has the more appealing game and has really put up the better results as of late. So really strong finish to the year from him. Got to give him massive credit for that. And sure, the search for the next great American tennis player is still underway. Personally, I think that Sebastian Corda gives the U.S. the best chance since Andy Roddick, and I have said that. I think that he should be certainly a top 10 player in the world. And he's won a lot of matches for his age and has had some really impressive moments. Didn't finish the year on a super crazy strong tear, although he did play well in Paris. Won a couple matches and then took to Neil Medvedev 3. But I just think he is phenomenally talented. But for now, props to Fritz. He is sort of that placeholder as the top American. And this was a very impressive tournament and a continuation of a very impressive string of tournaments. So credit to him. One of these storylines that really stood out to me as far as what we saw in Paris We're going to take a quick break on the other side. Going to talk about another storyline that stood out to me from Paris and then some of the action that we are seeing this upcoming week, although there isn't a whole ton of it. And then we'll briefly touch on what we're going to see in the year-end finals on both the men's and the women's side. So with that, you are listening to Down the Line on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. All right. So... I mentioned that Taylor Fritz really had one of the more remarkable runs in this tournament and a continuation got to the quarters. But there was another more surprising candidate who also reached the quarterfinals in Paris. And that is Hugo Gaston. I said that very French. At least I tried to. Drop the H on uh, Hugo. I don't think that you say the H if you're French. That's my understanding of the language. But regardless, Gaston is a guy who has had a fascinating few appearances on tour so far, has not whatsoever been a consistent presence, but was a very, very prominent junior and got as high as world number two in those rankings and has made a few appearances on tour in some big spots and has won a lot of matches. He's 9-6 and six on tour this year, 7-2 and two in his last two tournaments. And that doesn't even include the fact that just to qualify in Paris, he had to beat Kevin Anderson and Lorenzo Musetti, another couple of very, very legitimate wins. And he's a fascinating player. Fascinating player. I've talked about him before because he's made a little bit of noise. But the dude is a 5'8 lefty. And really does not have anything approximating weapons, I mean does not hit the ball with a ton of pace, is going to hit it a little bit loopier, is going to mix in a whole ton of drop shots, but I really think to a certain extent he has a couple of competitive advantages in that he is weird, that works to his advantage, It's just an unorthodox playing style, and he just plays super hard. Really good mover, is willing to go out there and play extended defense to make guys work for points. He had one against Alcaraz, who he beat, along with Carreño Busta, a couple of really quality wins in this tournament, where I think he hit four or five straight lobs, and eventually Alcaraz missed the overhead, and his anticipation was fantastic, so... He's just that kind of player. He's just really going to make you work. And he even made Daniil Medvedev work. He went down 7-6, 6-4 in that one. The first set tiebreak was really tight. So just a guy who rises to the moment. And what I think is so interesting is he does have these wins at the tour level, but he hasn't like been sweeping the field in challengers. In fact, He's 15 and seven in challengers over that same period in which he's seven and two on tour and hasn't won a challenger title in that period. So it's just really interesting because I think that that kind of speaks to what I said about the competitive advantage there, where it's just he's a little bit weird for anybody to play. So maybe the talent of his opponent isn't as much of a factor because you just don't see a whole ton of guys like him. I don't know. I don't think he has a super high ceiling. He's up to world number 67 now. He's never going to be a top 10 guy in my book. I mean, he's 21. He's really a late bloomer as far as just even being competitive on tour for a guy who was a top two junior in the world, which I think makes sense given his physical frame, his skill set and all that. I really think he's more of like a top 50 kind of guy. Like I don't see a top 10 ceiling whatsoever, but hey, he keeps winning matches and we're about to see him in the Next gen finals. So that's fun. I mean, we'll get a sense there of how he competes against some of the best guys. Takes on Sebastian Corda, in fact. And that starts tomorrow. So something to look forward to there. And then another young guy, a very young guy, who uh, to me is just a little bit intriguing. Moving on from Paris now, this was in Stockholm yesterday. We saw Leo Borg's tour debut who, for those of you who don't know, is the son of Bjornborg, 18 years old. And he lost to Tommy, Ball, Tommy Paul, wasn't super tight, and hasn't had the most success in the professional action that we have seen from him so far. Again, this is his debut in a main draw uh, on an ATP-level tournament. But in his pro career, 1-15 in 15 between challengers and ITF Futures and qualifying matches for... Main ATP tournaments since he uh, had his first appearance last year, it's not great. And he's only 18, he was a top 12 junior in the world at his peak. But it seems to me that those results tell you, hey, maybe we're forcing the issue a little bit here. And he's going to keep getting wild cards. I mean, obviously, Stockholm is one thing, but he's going to keep getting into qualifying draws more than he should be because he's Bjorn Borg's son, obviously. But I do wonder if maybe college tennis would have been a better route or something. Just because if you're winning one of 16 matches and you're not even, again, playing top 100 guys in the world yet, really. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't good players in challengers and whatnot. We know that those draws have really only gotten stronger. But futures as well, you're not winning. It just seems like there is a really big gap to be bridged. And it's not just that... You lose a whole ton, and you're not giving yourself great chances to get points accordingly. That's just got to be damaging your confidence, and you're really not getting something out of losing every time. Playing people better than you is good. It's very valuable, but also, it can't be every single time out there. You have to win some matches. You maybe need some structured coaching. Maybe you need the environment, something like what well, college tennis brings. So I don't think that's going to happen, to be clear. I think that the decision has been made, but could have been beneficial. Because he is definitely struggling up to this point. So, elsewhere in Stockholm, an interesting draw. I mean, obviously, we're at a really weird stage in the year now because we're basically just tuning up for the year-end finals, and there really isn't a whole lot for guys who have not qualified for that to do. I mean, the opportunities are fading pretty quickly, but... Nevertheless, we do have Yannick Sinner in this draw. We have Felix Auger-Aliassime. We have Denis Shapovalov. So that's all pretty fun. Now, when it comes to the other action this week, I mentioned that we are about to have a matchup between Gaston and Korda. That is in the Next Gen ATP Finals, which, if you are familiar with this show, you know. Oh, we love watching the young guys play. We love... Tracking the young players, seeing their development, seeing how they progress, and honestly, it's a really cool draw. We have Brandon Nakashima. We have him facing Sarundalo in the first round, who didn't, or excuse me, the group stage, who didn't have a really consistent year on tour, but had a really high apex where he had a great run in a single tournament. We have Alcaraz against Holger Rune. I think Alcaraz is really on another level right now than everybody else in this tournament. But Huguerun, of course, a former number 1 ITF junior. That's exciting. And then we have Lorenzo Musetti going up against Baez. I think that Sebastian Baez is maybe a bit of a step behind a lot of the other guys here. Hasn't cracked the top 100 in the world yet. And... It really doesn't excite me as much as a lot of these other guys. I mean, you've heard me probably do a segment if you've listened to the show long enough about every single other one of these guys, and that has never happened for Baez. So I think that he might be a little bit outmatched in this field. But overall, man, very fun, and I think you have to look at Alcaraz as the favorite. I think that Corda and Musetti are the next two guys, but it's going to be really cool to see. And I love this addition to the schedule. I love that these guys have a chance to play in their own sort of mini year-end finals. Just because, hey, why not? Who doesn't love the next-gen guys? So that'll be very fun. We'll have that to reflect on for next week's show. And then from here on out, it is just getting ready for the tour finals. So we're not going to dive too deep into that because, again, we still have another week. But we do have, at the very least, the field's on both the men's and the women's side for now, presuming that nobody else withdraws, which I guess that's not a total guarantee because we've seen a decent amount of withdrawals and or just people who aren't available. But on the men's side, we have Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev, who is defending his title there after also he won Paris last year, finished 2020 very, very strong. Stefano Sitzipas, Alexander Zverev, and then we have Rublev, Berrettini, and the two real newcomers kind of... Out of nowhere, guys, at least at the beginning of the year, Casper Rudd and Herkosh. I think that talent wise, they are a step below the rest of the field, but nevertheless, going to be cool to see them in here and deserving candidates. Dudes who have had phenomenal years. Casper Rudd, unbelievably consistent, 53 and 15 record, five titles. And then Herkosh, sure, maybe is riding a little bit of high from that Miami title, but also has three titles overall on the year. Put up a really good result here in Paris, and so finished the year on a high note, and I think a pretty deserving guy. I would have preferred to see Yannick Sinner, selfishly, of course, and he was really the other main candidate vying for that spot, but alas, he didn't get it done. He lost Alcaraz. Tough draw in Paris, but hey, you play who's in front of you, and props to Rakosh for getting that done. On the women's side, a wild field, completely wild field. Ash Barty is not going to be there. So the top seed is Sabalenka, then it's Krejcikova, Pliskova, Sakari, Sviatek, Muguruza, Badosa, and Kantavite. A lot of the top alternates are not going to be there. Ons Jabor, very, very sad. Very sad for me personally. Osaka, Pavlyonchenkova, Svitolina, they're not going to be on site as alternates. So Pagula and Mertens will fill in in that role. Wild, man. I don't think you would have believed me if I said, hey, yeah, Barbara Krejcikova, you know, that solid player on tour. Yeah, she's going to be actually the number two seed in the year end finals. Sakari, even though I love her game, I actually have long loved her game. Number four, kind of wild, but hey, I love that. And I think that that's deserved. Muguruza as well. Badosa and Kontavite on the back end, again, just crazy. Badosa has the Indian Wells title and really had a pretty good year overall. And Kontavite won four smaller tournaments. So, deserving people all around obviously injuries played a factor had some underachievers maybe on the women's side on the men's side we don't have Dominic Team. we don't have Roger Federer we don't have Rafa Nadal so the fields are a little bit different than what you would have expected but hey that's part of what's fun and we'll see how everybody rises to the challenge so we have that to look forward to but again before that we have the next gen files we have Stockholm so stay plugged in with all of that enjoy some tennis Take a deep breath. Take it all in because we really don't have all that much more of it before we have just a month off, really, obviously, because the tennis calendar just does not really stop, but it is going to stop briefly soon. So enjoy it while we have it here, and I hope that you've enjoyed this show. So with that, as always, I've been Carson Breber, This was Down the Line. You are listening to Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com.